Welcome to First Generation Burden, a series of conversations with immigrants and the children of immigrants. My name is Rich Tu and I'm your host. So welcome back for season two. We've been on hiatus for a really long time and uh, I've been getting a lot of really sweet messages about uh, when when is the podcast going to be coming back. So uh, finally we are back and I'm really glad that uh, we could arrive specifically in this moment in time. There are a few things that are different in my world as I'm sure there are in yours. Um, one of them being that uh, I've moved out of Oregon and I'm back living in New York in Brooklyn. So I lived in Oregon for almost two years and had a lot of really amazing experiences, both personal and professional. And I uh, made a lot of new friends and um, that I'll take with me forever. Uh, but I am very happy to be back on the uh, East Coast. So uh, I'm just really accumulating back here and like waiting to see what happens next. So I want to address a couple of things about season two in relation to season one. Um, season one was very much a, a personal uh, reaction to a lot of the rhetoric was ha- that was happening at the time in relation to uh, immigrants and uh, the role of immigrants in, in this country, um, specifically dealing with the rhetoric of the election at the the time so that this podcast was born out of that frustration hearing about um, a lot of the negativity that was in the zeitgeist at the time and this season is still very much a reaction to things that are going on uh, but I definitely had a few goals walking into season two as opposed to season one one was having more women on the show I know in season one we only had uh, one woman uh, the amazing Leslie Rosales who's my homegirl and uh, recently moved to New York as well and uh, this season I definitely wanted more of that energy um, and to you know put up uh, uh, an aspirational um, North Star for a lot of people of color um, that are listening to this podcast Um, two is also to diversify uh, the skill sets I think that last season I I leaned very heavily on uh, design um, uh, within a world of um, you know illustration graphic design photography um and uh i this year i wanted to kind of break out into a further mindset of creativity um just out of my own personal curiosity as well as you know there 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 are so many things in the world that i just want to be able to expose everyone to as much of that as possible as well as myself so be in the lookout for the next episodes because um, i think you guys are really going to enjoy them and we have some really amazing stories coming up and for season two, we have a sponsor, Des Gin. Des Gin is an American modern gin with a mission to unite design with the spirit industry. Designed both inside and out, it merges the traditional and the unconventional. I'm a big fan of these guys personally. Also, they're uh, really good friends uh, with uh, the Sunday afternoon crew. So um, I'm, I am a believer and I enjoy the drink. All right, so for today's guest, we have Nishat Akhtar. Uh, she's my homegirl from Portland, Oregon, and uh, she's definitely one of the amazing human beings that I that I met during my time out there. And we had this we had this conversation about uh, two and a half months ago. Uh, I was literally about to move out out of my apartment in Portland, and then uh, Nishat uh, came over. We had we had a, an amazing. Uh, conversation that i hope you guys enjoy uh we have a lot in common um in that uh our parents both came from asia hers from india mine from the philippines 
and uh, her parents are both in the medical industry and my mother was in the medical industry and and we both had uh, issues with representation growing up and we have really uh, strong feelings about um, uh, otherness and, and multicultural representation especially in the context of uh, Eurocentric design uh, which we'll get into and it's not all shop talk we talk about her growing up in Philly uh, living in New York making her way over to Portland Oregon her parents and their history um, in India and also uh, she grew up uh, going to the same school as Kobe Bryant so uh, there's some really interesting anecdotes for all you 90s basketball fans out here so enjoy that conversation did you get to see it though no, I did not get to see Hamilton. Dang. My involvement was like so. Uh, uh, oh, the uh, the echo is like really fucking up in my ear. Uh-huh. Um, my involvement was so offsite. I was literally just like doing stuff in the morning before I go to the office Got for it. about like a week and a half. So I'd wake up like around like six in the morning and I just like crank super hard, and then uh, I'd just be in the office by nine, and then I'd finish up on the bookend weekends. It was like about like eight nine days, it was, like Dang. really hard work. Yeah. I got beef with it though. Oh, with Hamilton? Yeah. All the Sorry, Lynn Manuel, but um when you know the song's all seventeen seventy six, New York City. And I'm like, hold up. This stuff was happening in Philadelphia, where yeah. I'm from. And I got, I'm just a little salty about that. Right. Oh, interesting. Hmm. Do you think that like that's a really important bit of like historical inaccuracy that's in the show? Maybe. I don't really know the history the pr- precise history of where Alexander Hamilton yeah, was at the time. <laughs> <laughs> Me neither. I wish I knew more so I could actually talk intelligently about it, but I'm just like, oh. But I feel like shit was popping in Philly in 1776. Sure. Sure. And I get it. Like, you know, setting the musical in New York and Lemon Wells, like, you know, trying to represent and that's what's up. But, you know, Philly always gets a short end of the stick. Nope. Nobody cares. Yeah, it's hard. Except people from Philly. It is hard. I think for a New York musical, specifically Broadway and having had like some experience in that world, Broadway is so insular and kind of smells its own farts. Yeah. And loved, loves the smell of its own farts yeah. oh. <laughs> so, so it's uh it, like broadway if it, it, it's about new york if it's about new york it's new york of course all the way. or if it's about philly it's gonna be the most philly thing on earth true you know what i mean make it as over the top exactly exactly like the key art will probably be, be like a cheese steak or rocky. <laughs> like, like a philly cheese steak and like a like a you know an eagles fan hanging you out you should be rocky the musical there was Rocky the musical. How did I not know that? Yeah, um, I'm upset. I think very that, upset with myself. <laughs> that was about uh, two to three years ago. Yeah, and I think it was uh, right before Creed came out, and then Sylvester Stallone I think showed up and like did the thing. What'd you think about Creed? Uh, amazing. Yep. I love Creed. Love Creed. Oh God, that one scene where the twelve o'clock boys are doing all the wheelies oh, yeah. like in slow motion. I'm like, man, I cry. Those are me too. Those are actual. That's an actual bike gang from Philly. Yeah, they. That's very very normal. I witnessed. Um, I witnessed a funeral procession Whoa. for one of the most high profile like uh, dirt bike riders in Philly. Dirt back, a dirt uh, bike rail, dirt uh, bike rail. It was okay. crazy. I was like, not, I was just visiting home and walking down the street with yeah. one of my girlfriends and we were going to the coffee shop and we couldn't cross the street because there was like 20 motorbikes that went by and everybody's 12 o'clock and it was so cool. Sure. And then suddenly there was like minivans with both the side doors open and people standing outside of it. Oh, and wow. And then there were bicycles and then there, and this went on. There were probably a thousand people that went by us. Yeah, it was cool. And it was all bikes. Mostly yes. bikes. Mostly bikes, a couple of minivans with no doors on the side, which was really Oh, gotcha. 
they did a whole tribute ride around the city. Damn. Yeah, it was cool. Oh, quads too. Bikes, qu- motorbikes, dirt bikes, quads, bicycles, minivans without doors. You ever been on, on a quad? Um, no. Really? Yeah. Those are, those look really fun to me because I feel like on a bike I would crash. Like when I went to the One Moto show out here. Oh yeah. I, w- I look at dudes and I I would see some people that like look like they had been hurt or like limping or something or with canes or or in wheelchairs. <laughs> I was like I was like oh that's that's dope that like uh, we have all types of uh, of bike fans. Um, but then I realized I was like oh there's probably a good contingent of them that had fallen. Yeah. I, and I didn't realize that like none of it connected to me until yeah. someone told me. I was like oh wow. Yeah, they're living it. They're living it. That is their life, man. That's scary. And those dudes, I mean, I, it's both really scary and really cool in Philly. Like, you see them just doing crazy wheelies 40 miles an hour down the sidewalk. And it's, right. a, little, it's a little horrifying, but also extremely exciting and very cool. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, before we get way too deep, because oh, I yeah. feel like we're already like really deep, <laughs> um, Nishat Akhtar... Please tell me if I'm mispronouncing anything. Nishad Akhtar, you're good. Yeah, uh, yeah so uh, Nishad Akhtar, uh, you are amazing creative, and I respect the hell out of you, and I think you do great work. And um, welcome to First Generation Burden, the podcast, season two. Hey. Which is kind of interesting. Um uh, I thought that this would be a really great reintroduction because I thought that you and I had a really great interaction a couple weeks ago at the Emblematic show yes. that our mutual friend Adam Garcia uh, threw on at the Yanagita Projects. Whoop. Yeah, totally. And um, and I thought we had a really great conversation about not just about being uh, first generation uh, uh, children of immigrants and also like what it takes in terms of uh, to succeed in the world, uh, you know, when, in regards to your familial history. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, I just think that you, you know, everything that we were talking about just resonated so well with me. I thought it'd be great, like a reintroduction to the thesis of the show, essentially, as well as like you being like a truly entertaining individual. So, ha, well, dope. <laughs> I'm so excited to be here. It's incredible. Oh, totally. Uh, appreciate it. Uh oh, can't connect to iCloud. Come on, computer, stop being a jerk. Okay, so and we're done. <laughs> yeah, and it's over. So uh, thank you. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> uh, so I just want to uh, just turn the dial back a little bit and just dip into um, a little bit of her history. Um, I, just, I want to know, like, I would love to know um, where uh, where your parents are from. Sure. Like, what, yeah, where your family's from. Okay. Yeah, like all that. Like, I just cool. really want to start at the beginning. All right, great. So my parents are from India. Mm-hmm. They met there at some point, early 70s in medical school. Uh, the kind of interesting part of the story, uh, they got married um, my dad is Muslim and my mom is Hindu, which is an incredibly rare and I think was illegal at the time when they got married. Um, you know, my mom was disowned from her family. It's like pretty sad. She came and li- she went and lived with my dad's family for a little while, maybe a couple months before they moved to America. Um, that was 1973 when they immigrated here and they were able to immigrate here based on the Asians of Exceptional Education Act. Oh, I don't know if it's in the 70s. Yeah. In the 70s, there was a sudden influx of exceptionally educated Asians. I think my parents might have come in on that, too, because they came in in the late 60s, Mm -hmm. early 70s. Sure. It could could have been around then. Uh, The ironic thing about that is my my dad's a doctor and you couldn't you couldn't pass your boards in India if you wanted to leave the country because it was a socialist economy at the time. Um. They were re- India was rebuilding after being left from 
the British only, what, 1947? So it was a socialist economy at the time, and India was like, no, we, want, we don't want any brain drain. We want to keep everybody who's highly educated here. So my dad actually had to go to Sudan to take his boards, where he, he had an uncle that was living there, and then he came back to India, and then they were able to come to America based on that act. Wow. And they settled in Philly? I think that- where all immigrants go first is New Jersey. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, wow. Huh. Is that true? Because I am from New Jersey originally. Oh, shout out, dude. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. They first came to New Jersey, which I think. And there was a huge Indian contingent there, too. Oh, yeah. True. They had a few friends there who maybe they had gone to medical school with originally. Some of these details are a little fuzzy, and sure. I might be making some of this stuff up. But. Hopefully it works out. But yeah. um Hamilton. Yeah. Hamilton made some stuff up, apparently. <laughs> Just you wait. <laughs> um, they came to New Jersey and were there for a little bit. I think that they were working in Newark. I'm not sure. It, okay. Or excuse me, my dad was working there. It has a lot to do with also, maybe the American doctors didn't want to work there. And it was a great opportunity for, oh, we can get the immigrants to work in these Oh, that's interesting. Because I know Newark in the 70s, they had just come out of like, you know, a lot of racial tension that still exists there. Oh, yeah. And then that area was in a massive rebuild at the time. Yeah. It's still kind of in a a bit of a rebuild. But, Mm -hmm. you know, it's that that's. Uh, intrinsic to the area, I feel. For sure, for sure. Um, I know that it was a very shocking place to be for my mom. We've talked about that before. And they had this kind of group of, of, of different doctors and residents there that were, some were from India. There was a Brazilian couple that was there. And um, my, my mom has told me a few stories and some of her friends from that group have told me some stories. Really? As I got older, which I had never heard as a kid, um, it's funny. It's like straight out of Aziz Ansari, Master of None, or his sure. stand-up, where you're like, "Wow, these are sentences from my life too." Where uh, they just sat, you know, with no furniture on the floor in the apartment and just cried. Wow. And you're like, "Oh, so you didn't want to go explore your new neighborhood?" It's like, "No, we just sat there and cried." Because it was just too different. Of course, too different. Like, way too, too different. Way too different. So anyway, they were in New Jersey for a little while. Wait, and- was this also the beginning of the uh, the phenomenon of uh, of Indian doctors in America? I guess must be. I mean, really? that stereotype. I obviously have lived that because my dad, my dad's a doctor, my mom's a nurse. For sure. Um, I would think because my mother's a doctor and my my aunt is also a doctor, and a oh, Filipino. Wow. Oh wow! But I, I know that there is like that that phenomenon of uh, Filipino nurses within the medical mm-hmm. field too. Like that's mm-hmm. such a that's a thing. Totally for sure. Um, once I got hit by a car when I was living in New York on my bike, and I had to go to the ER, and this lady, and she was a Filipino nurse. Gotcha. She came to me to give give me some medicine, but she like it, I was so comforted because she just like. <laughs> look like my mom and I was was like I need some medicine because I'd been waiting there for an hour I've been hit by a car I need medicine yeah my ribs were broken my wrist was broken Um, and this lady how many years ago was this um 10 years ago maybe um yeah, so it happens. If you ride a bike in New York, you're going to get hit by a car. It's, oh, yeah. Especially back then. There were no bike lanes back then. Dude, but- I saw a guy get hit with uh, by a van in front of Madison Square Garden like three years ago. Oh, God. And that, but dude was dragged for like a hot second. No. Yeah, and we were all waiting to cross the street, so it was like horror. We are like, ah, it was like body horror. Oh, and, my God. Uh, but then he actually gets up, mir- miraculously, like looks fine. Wow. And then the driver was in such shock, he didn't even get out of the car. And then we all just crossed the street while the dude just like walked his like shitty bike (laughs) yeah, yeah, walked it away just like and we all just shamed the driver we were just like good like you suck you suck dude and then dude didn't even get out of his car he was so shocked wow yeah um this person did get out of the car so anyway i was in the hospital this this filipino nurse who reminded me of my mom comes up and i was like oh i'm like really starting to feel pain like can you give me something she comes up with a needle and i was like oh do you want my arm and she looks at me and she's like no i'm gonna put it in your butt and i looked (laughs) 
And I was so horrified. She said it just flat out, so I believed her, and I started to turn over, and she just started cracking up. <laughs> she clowned me that hard, which is definitely a joke my That's mom would pull on so good. That's I believed so her. Good. I believed her. Yeah. So, she made you believe. Yeah. So bless, why would she lie? Why would she lie all about the Asian that? nurses. I, pre- I appreciate it. Um, Sorry, Nishad. We're putting in your butt. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, do, do what it takes, I guess. <laughs> take, take my pain away. Uh, okay. So uh, parents parents in Newark. Sure, sure. They were, yeah. they were in Jersey for a little bit. And then they moved to Virginia, um, to Charlottesville, Virginia. Um, what college is that? Is Not- there a community there? Or was it like work? What was it? I don't know. Oh, for work. I don't know about community at all. Um, my dad was teaching there, I believe, at the hmm, University of Virginia, maybe? Sure. Um, he was teaching there. They were there for about five or six years. My brother was born there. Mm-hmm. And then Older, short- younger. Older. Got it. So I'm not born yet. Got it. I'm not around. This is still, we're still in, we're like 1975 now. Okay. So maybe a year in New Jersey, a year or two in New Jersey, a couple, couple years in Virginia, and then they moved to Philly, 1979. Mm-hmm. Then I'm born. <laughs> now it gets interesting. Gotcha. <laughs> yeah. Nishat's here. Now, now we're, yeah, now now we're, we're living cool. life. Yeah. Yeah. The Sixers, or maybe it was the Flyers were having a really, really good time. At, you know, they're winning championships. The Sixers were gaining some momentum. I guess the Sixers lost to the Blazers in the championship in 1977. But anyway, Philadelphia, here I am. My dad got it. My dad got a job at... Um, a hospital where he is still working. Wow. 37 years. Wow. I know. My mom retired after 25 years. That's, wow. That's and, and I was shocked at that. Wow. 37. Nobody worked. I mean, at least in our industry, I don't know anybody that's ever had a job that long. Yeah. At a place. I don't think I've ever had a job for more than two years. Mm, as evidence three. of like, really? I've had three. Yeah. Oh, nice. Nice. Ooh, three is a good one. Yeah. That's kind of the limit. <laughs> yeah, that's true. It's like almost graduating school, but then dropping out. Yeah. The year before. <laughs> I, I, you know, actually, you make you make a really great point because I mm-hmm. think like people like us, uh, we are uh, used to the idea of education. Mm-hmm. So we go into a place like with the thought of like, oh, it's going to be like another grad school. Yeah. Or like with the mindset of that, like I'm of really going to work hard and then I'm going to graduate yes. after I've learned something and I'm, I'm breaking out. Yep. I look at jobs both like school and like dating where yeah. you're like, okay, Ooh, cool. I'm going to get what I need out of this. Yeah. And, you know, either it's going to, you know, flourish into an incredible long-term situation or, you know, I'm going to move on to something else that's going to be better. Yeah. That's not at all. I mean, it's funny to think that my dad's worked in the same place for 37 years. Yeah. Um, and my mom also worked, I think, at this, a similar, in, in a job for over 20 years. And like you said... I, I mean, I've been doing this for a while and I've never been anywhere longer than three. And I can't imagine being somewhere longer than that. Yeah. Do you think that contributes to your freshness though? Ha, ha. Um, yes. Yeah, right? Sure. I, I think so. I think that there's... Uh, like, want- when, like when I walk into a, a situation and I see a creative individual who's a quote unquote creative individual who's been there for more than like 10, 15 years, I'm just like, man... Uh, are you good? Mm-hmm, are you good, mm-hmm. or, or are you just like a figurehead, and you just over, and you have like such a a bird's eye view of things, and you just really guide right. the you know the direction of the company, right? Right. You know, perspective is really important. Like getting doing other things, and whether that's like you can't just go to your job, right? Like, right. Mo- I don't know anybody that only just goes to their job. Like, I play soccer, I play basketball. You know, I like to go hiking, I travel, I draw every day that I come home from whatever job I'm doing. Yeah. You know, I also I teach part time at Portland State University here, and that is an incre- that's an incredible perspective yeah. gift every single time you go in there. Um, doing yeah, doing different things to keeping it fresh. Yes, I think that changing up the job every couple of years or freelancing for sure gotcha. keeps the freshness. 
So you grew up in Virginia? I did not. I never lived in Virginia. Oh, you didn't? Yeah. Philadelphia area. I grew oh, okay. Right- okay. Sorry. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. Um- <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. You're about to be so offended by me right now. I know. I Now I'm remembering. Um, yeah. The I'm flyers, the Sixers, steps. Yes, of course. Eagles, Philadelphia. <laughs> it's funny meeting you downstairs when we were doing this. Like we immediately started talking about like the Sixers. I was like, oh, yeah. huh. Yeah. yeah. I was like, you're so Philly. For sure. My my um, avatar on Instagram is a picture of Charles Barkley. And I got into an argument with somebody because they were like, oh, but he played in the sun. He played on the Suns. He's like most well known for playing on the Suns, which I kind of, I don't know, he had a longer career in Philadelphia than he did in Phoenix, and he it was his last year when he was in Philadelphia right before he went to go play in the Olympics on the on the first Dream Team. Yeah, none so, too, yeah. come on, I, I think that, I mean, his number's retired in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. It is also retired in Phoenix. It is right. also retired in Auburn, so. Right, right, right. Um, I think the era, the Phoenix era is just more famous for him, probably because, like, uh, I think sponsorships. Yeah. He, had a, he also had also, maybe a little bit really of a better vocal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, he was vocal in mm-hmm. Phoenix. So I think the the Barkley persona really was, uh, you know, was uh, carved in stone in Phoenix. Born in Philadelphia. Yeah, I, mean, know, I hear you. But it's like how Rodman, like Rodman in Detroit. For sure. People always forget he was part of the bad boys. But mm-hmm. then like really the persona was really built in, I think, probably San Antonio. San Antonio into Chicago. That's a good point. I never really thought about that. I haven't focused on him. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, he's a good guy. I, I've never met him, but I've just I just like him. Yeah, I just like him a lot. Have you seen the Bad Boys documentary on ESPN? Thirty for thirty. Thirty for thirty. For sure. Oh man, for sure. For it sure. it is like one of the best ones I've ever seen. Easily, they're all good. They are all good. Winning time's my favorite. Reggie Miller. Oh, that's a good one too. Banana. Because he talks so much shit. And he also, well, yeah, I and, love and he's him. Amazing. And shout out to his sister because she's like an incredible. Oh yeah. I, oh yeah. All those films are great. Can you imagine like growing up in that household? Where your sister <laughs> no. is like the like one of the greatest female athletes, like possibly of all time. Yeah, and then like you're li- you're living with a living legend, like right next door. That's Th- nuts. That would be pretty dope. You know, yeah. it's like a uh, it's like a Williams sister situation. I know. I did. I went to high school with a legend, a basketball legend. Exactly. You know, I went to high school with Kobe Bryant. Did you really? Yeah, he was one year above me. So I, went, <laughs> that's I was not in... who I thought you would say. Can <laughs> I say that's not what I thought you'd say? I thought you'd have like some way like lower level individual. Yeah, have you heard of him, Kobe yeah, Bryant? Yeah, like, oh, I went to school with an athlete legend. Yeah, it's Kobe. It's so bananas. Bryant. From seventh grade, he. So in my in my seventh grade yearbook, he was yeah. in eighth grade, and he was of course voted most likely to succeed. Sure. And you kind of wonder like, what happened to that? Didn't he grow up in Italy? Till seventh grade. Until seventh. Till eighth grade, grade I guess. Uh, then he came because his dad, Jellybean Bryant, was playing yep. in, in the European League. Gotcha. Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. We can talk more about in- we can talk in- more Indian about parents. <laughs> if you want. Sorry, I just no. I, lo- I love sports tangent. I love the divergence. It's actually really interesting. Wait, uh-huh. so before we go back into like upbringing, what was Kobe like? Was he um, cool? Yeah, super cool. I mean, what's really weird about that? He seems like a gym rat to me. Situation is, um, yeah. What's really weird about that situation is, I had like no grasp of of the magnitude of what's happening. No, you know, I had no idea that I was essentially going to be like, was growing up with one of the greatest basketball players of all time. And high school basketball games were super fun um, and amazing and incredible, but it was also just what was normal to me. Um, I also briefly went to another high school where um, my, one of my closest friends at that high school, this is, anyway, this is so tangential. No, I'm, I'm, I'm I'm so curious. Um, My, my, the other high school I went to... Um, I'm just trying to make sure that my phone doesn't get interrupted again. Oh, sure. The other high school I went to, um, one of Dr. J's children, Corey Irving, rest in peace. Oh. Uh, I know. Um, went there. And so this 
really sort of normal basketball culture was just around all the time. You yeah. know, it's just normal. Yeah, it's it like is oh, normal. I met Dr. J. That's the most incredible thing. But like Corey's my homie, and um, Kobe being the most incredible basketball player and a legend, it was just kind of normal. That was just what high school basketball was. I have no other perspective of high school games being really crappy. <laughs> you've ne- you've never seen a bad game. No. Theoretically. No. Even exactly. Like, yeah, even like when like the bum squad comes to play you guys, it's like, "Oh, well, we're watching Kobe, so." Yeah. It, ex- yeah. I mean, we there were some there were some tough games for sure. I I remember that. Um like going to Chester was really crazy. I can't believe I remember all this stuff. But <laughs> um I'm actually really bummed because in all this time that I've done projects for Nike, I never once got to work on a project with him. Oh. I was hoping that this like crazy like some crazy reunion would have happened after yeah. like 15 years of not seeing each other and then walk into the room and be like, "Kobe, what you been up to, man? Anything, uh, anything interesting? <laughs> You'd be like, yo, shot. what's up? Yeah, what's up? <laughs> Remember that time you gave me uh, a spare applesauce in the, in the cafeteria? Oh, I, wa- I wasn't, I, I wish I was like the nerd that I am now when I was in school. <laughs> But I was, it was dark time, dark times back then. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, like, yo, in, so in Philly growing up, like, was it like, what was the vibe? Was there a community in Philadelphia? We didn't grow up in a Indian community at all. Gotcha. I mean, my, this, was it something that was meaningful to you? I think it would have been meaningful to me to yeah. have been connected to it. And, and in retrospect, I think that the, the separation from that kind of caused a lot of issues for myself, emotional issues, like just not feeling, always feeling left out and not really understanding that, you know, never seeing yourself reflected back at you for sure. Yeah. Um, it's a, it's a real thing. Yeah. I mean, I, where I grew up was like the first suburb right outside of Philly and it was an entirely Jewish community. And, um, the schools that I went to were, you know, mostly white. Yeah. And then there was like a black community and the, everybody else. And that was, that was the experience. And it was strange. Yeah. You know? And I think, I don't think I felt that it was strange back then, but in retrospect, I really feel like it was strange. Um, I experienced a lot of weird underhanded racism and also overt racism. And at a certain point, the like, I, yeah, I was this nerdy kid. I loved horses and I had, I will show you this amazing sixth grade photo of me, like <laughs> giant glasses. I look like Indian blossom. And, um, but at a certain point I couldn't take people giving me shit anymore. So I started fighting and oh. I started literally fighting people. And really? I, I did like a full 180 and I was probably the, you know, a nightmare for any immigrant parents to suddenly have this. Oh, especially of, I'm sure conservative parents too. Sure, I think my parents are extremely liberal. The fact, oh, are they really? Yeah, oh, the fact that like it's good a, for them. Yeah, <laughs> the fact. Well, <laughs> That's the, dope. The fact that the fact that they like you know my my parents were married to each other like a Muslim and a Hindu were married. Oh to each yeah, other, you're right. Right. Yeah. That's yeah. huge. That's pretty radical. So I mean, they. It's not to say like we eat Indian food at home, but we also ate pizza, and they spoke Urdu and Punjabi and Hindi in the house, mm-hmm. but we spoke English. Yeah, you know, and they weren't forcing us to be only friends with Indian kids. There was a certain group of their friends who lived in New Jersey that they were still in touch with that we would go to the Indian functions with, but we weren't seeing them every weekend. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We'd see them maybe once a month. Gotcha. Um, and I feel a strong connection to those people even still today. Um, but it wasn't, it wasn't always there. Sure. You know? Yeah. What was your sense of self at the time? Like say like you're on high school, 
high school to college? Like, what, like, what were you, were you searching or was it more? Yeah, definitely. I, I mean, I was really depressed and, um, I don't think I had an answer for why that was. I mean, it's something I still struggle with for sure, but, um, I was depressed. I was dealing with a lot of questions that I didn't have answers to. You know, I mean, also yeah. being a teenager is crazy enough. Being And then suddenly being uh, a woman and being a brown girl and then a brown kind that you're not seeing around you. Super, totally. co- super confusing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so it was a big struggle. I got really close with lots of different people, but definitely like the black community in my school were like the people I was identifying with. Sure. And, you know, nowadays like hip hop is just... Omnipresent. 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 It was not back then. You know, hip hop was political. And I mean, it it has roots in that too, right? And that's, I was very drawn to that. Um, And I came up. I was skateboarding, so there was right. a sort of intersection of. Were you punk- to the roots too? Because they're. You know. Oh yeah, I seen the roots in some pretty small, amazing situations. In oh Philly. wow, really cool. Um, but I was skateboarding a lot, so I was kind of at this intersection of punk and hip hop, which was uh, a really wonderful, amazing thing. In the and this 90s. is late '90s, mid to late '90s. We're talking. Yeah, we're talking, or I'd say mid '90s, like you know '94 ish. Um, and so I was doing a lot of searching. I was, and anyone is at that age, but I think that there was this sort of deeper situation that I, you know, I didn't, this deeper void that I didn't, I didn't have the language for probably until today. Um, and I was trying to figure all that out, you know, um, coming to love your brownness when society is telling you to hate it. And it's subtly, I I just mean, where do you think? So to to stick to that point, like, what, what do you think of the messages, the coded messages that, that we hear and like people are called because I think what's interesting is that multiculturalism and diversity is, is bigger than a conversation between like two groups and then there are you know other other types of humans sure. <laughs> like, yeah living sure. that have like another context like back home and here and that our experience is very very different from what everyone else's so we're often pushed to the side so like mm-hmm. what yeah what do you think that's a big. That's a big question. I know that was a lot. Yeah, well, like, yeah, like, what would those messages be? Because I mean, like, I think from a from a, a, a non intentional like perspective, um, it's probably like you know the lack of representation for in, sure in in TV and film or what the representation is. <laughs> and like, exactly, like Temple of Doom. Oh yeah, so fucked up. Yeah, totally. <laughs> that is also that movie isn't that's like possibly the worst uh indiana jones movie in my eyes yeah in, for although, sure although four is pretty bad but it's like the crystal skull crystal skull. yeah we yeah. can just do it with that yeah we could just do it yeah it's true so it doesn't count so it's probably the weakest of that trilogy anyway yeah let it, alone it the is. i remember seeing that and being like what this is not this this feels wrong yeah and i was pretty young when that like movie misrepresentation of brown people like this is not india like, i've been yeah. in india yeah, i know totally. i have like i have yelling there. asian kid <laughs> completely i'm like yeah. we don't eat you Damsel know, in distress. brains and snakes coming yeah. out of snakes. And, you know, I mean, I think snakes are cool and we've all kinds of interesting sculptures in our house for yeah. like Hindu deities and multi-headed snakes and all this stuff, but they have rich stories and they're beautiful. Yeah. Not sort of this ho- exotified horror. Yeah. That, that's not my culture. And to sort of see that in film what really felt wrong. And then the classic Apu from the Simpsons right. is the, it was the character that everyone saw as yeah. the, the you know, the Indian guy. Yeah. He was our, he was our representation. On totally. Yeah, for it's so true. long. It's true. How and, do you feel about that character? You know, for a long time, he was all that we had. Right? Yeah, it's true. Um, they did flesh him out though. I they, guess so. And they gave him a family and like actually yes, gave him Manjula, like. the kids. Yeah, exactly. Kind of gave him a, a real 
you know, existence. Yeah. I think that in pop culture, whenever there's like an introduction of a minority, they typically have to step in as a stereotype before they can just become anyone. Oh, I so agree. I so agree. So he had to break, he was part of breaking that barrier, I guess. So we can thank Apu for that. And, (laughs) (laughs) but we're good. We can move on now. We have Aziz, we have Hassan, we have Mindy, you know, we've got, we've got these, we've got these people on these, these, characters and um personas that are out there now right i think that he was sort of that i don't know that that building block he was that also by the way was news to me about um short circuit the indian dude in short circuit oh when i heard that i was like oh that guy's not indian i never i I never knew but then also that i know that bit of pop culture didn't stick in my brain. Oh, we like, loved that. We oh, loved really? that. We loved, I mean, we still, my brother and Short I still Short Circuit 2, though, is actually pretty, pretty interesting with Michael McKean. When, when they, yeah, because there's a, oh yeah, I just said that Short, uh, Short Circuit didn't stick around in my brain. Yeah, I'm talking like very deep. Short, Short Circuit 2 did. <laughs> but Short Circuit 2, let me tell you, it's like Bill and Ted's bogus journey to the initial. Um, So, in the second one, there's this chase scene at the end where like this, this old business corrupt businessman that isn't in great shape is like running Classic. with like this case of money or something and then Johnny Five is like chasing him down but then he just put himself back together after getting beat up with Radio Shack parts. Oh I remember I remember yeah, that. Yeah. Yes. And I was like huh this is really happening right now. <laughs> and like I taped it off of TV I would watch it like. Oh VHS. Yeah. On, nice. Yeah exactly. Nice. On the VHS. Um Wow, yeah. yeah. Um, but going back to the whole representation thing, mm-hmm. for me, that um, the, kind of the breakthrough moment for me was um, <clears throat> Rufio and Hook. Oh, Because yes. Dante Bosco Whoa. is Filipino. And at the time, I, I was really obsessed with uh, Say by the Bell specifically. Of course. So, uh, you know, like that show actually had some decent-ish representation. Yeah. Yeah, because AC Slater and like Lisa. Um, <clears throat> she was fly. Oh, hell yeah, she was. Are you kidding me? Which is what's up. Yeah, which because totally it wasn't was cool to be like it wasn't usually cool to be like a brown girl. You know what I mean? Yeah, or yeah, a black yeah. Girl and they or... made her like the fashion savant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was a cool move on yeah. their part. But that, but uh, looking at the shows, like I idolized Zach Morris, but then I every time I you know look in the mirror, obviously like that the image the the spells broken mm-hmm. because they don't look like anything like that. Mm-hmm. But then seeing a badass like Rufio depicted in film, yeah. where he's leading like this group of kids who are from everywhere, making their own culture off in another planet yeah essentially it's kind of you know and then it never happened again yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you're like i'm gonna make this podcast <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly it's in my mid-30s i was like Ugh. it's happening now and that is so crazy to be at this age and to be just seeing these things for the first time or still not even yeah. having it's crazy master of none up. exists now completely. only now completely i mean that's i'm 37 years old yeah master of none there are sentences that are being pulled out of my mouth that i have said so many times about my own family or even my own situation or dating or anything like that and that's happening now like if i'd been 17 if i'd been 14 and i had had that show Mm -hmm. things might have been different i I think so yeah but but you know i think to that point though it's like it just takes time for sure because like when it comes like the immigrant experience here like culture or uh, media doesn't reflect like that culture back end until they have disposable income. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, of but, course. But then now course. we've kind of hit a point where we're part of this new um, uh, uh, 
minority baby boom millennial generation because yeah. baby boomer is probably like the last generation where we could probably say that like oh they all there was a, a, a bunch of them mm-hmm. and they could they all had these types of preferences were into this type of shit they worked the same job for 35 years exactly exactly so now we have like that immigration baby boom where people like you and me they're like you know in like their like say uh, 20s and 30s who are, you know, have disposable income, have great jobs and pushing like, you know, six figure, six figure incomes too. It's man, it's yeah, we are. Sign me up for that. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? Yeah, of but, course I do. Yeah. So now people are like, oh, wait, they got, they got money. Yeah. And I think there's, there's just this paradigm shift to where people are realizing that the representation is necessary and that there are consumers out there that aren't just white men totally. or white women yeah. and, or not just straight people or, people who even identify with the gender. There are all kinds of people that are out there and are consuming media, culture, clothing, whatever. And those people... You know, they, they can be sold to, too. And how are you going to sell them? Sh- you know, representation. Yeah, they can. Not that we should only be selling stuff, but I think that... Um, uh, we are in an industry. Yeah, okay. Yeah. No, I'm not going to hide that part. <laughs> <laughs> but to be sold to means that, like, we're, it feels like you're being catered to. Sure, Yeah, it feels course. like people care about you. Yes, exactly. Like, if they don't, if they're not trying to sell to you, that means that, like, culture gives zero shits about you. Right. It's, right, it, it comes to storytelling. And if it, you can tell exactly. the story that's relevant to the person that's going to listen to the story. Exactly. Exactly. You got to put the right person at the mic. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um, how long were you in Philly for before you moved to New York? Um, I graduated high school and then I went straight to New York after that. I went to school at the Pratt Institute in Brooklyn. Oh, yeah. Um, it was a really interesting time. Pratt's dope. Yeah, Pratt's awesome. It was dope. Biggie had died a year before that. Um, or not even. He died in March of 1997. I moved to New York at in the end of the summer of 1997. Um, and, you know, he lived up the street from there, like really close. And so the energy in the neighborhood was interesting. I mean, and I remember being on the train and being, and, you know, getting off at certain stops, like Hoyt and Skimmerhorn and being like, oh, wow, J-Ru rapped about this. Or, oh, going to Myrtle Avenue, like, oh, wow, Mob Deep, you know, wrote songs about this. Yeah. And now here I am. It's not really like that anymore, but... It was a really cool time. I had <laughs> dreamed about sort of experiencing this amazing art, hip hop mecca of New York. Yeah. And I got, I got, I feel like I got some final taste of that for sure. Oh, when totally. I was there. Yeah. Yeah. The environment's so different now. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, for totally me, different. what was so incredible about that time was I had, you know, struggled a lot with the identity in high school and not fitting in or fitting in or finding my friends. And, um, you know, there are amazing people that uh, helped me through that time. And, you know, many different cultures, whether it was skateboarding or punk or hip hop or basketball or mm-hmm. running track, um, all of those things, which are all really different, you know, sort of helped formulate who I was. But then when I moved to New York and I went to Pratt, suddenly there are all kinds of beautiful brownness in that neighborhood. And while it's definitely a fancy art school, most of my friends that I made, you know, the first year were people who actually had grown up in New York, you know? So here, here's my group of friends that is like literally the United Colors of Benetton. And that's something I had, um, I don't know. I probably couldn't have even dreamed about it, you know, like having, having everybody who wanted to share their experiences, wanted to share their culture, wanted to share their food, wanted to make art together, wanted to go dance together, ride bikes together, hang out in the printmaking lab together, all of that stuff, go play basketball, all those things together in one space. And that was so dope. How do you feel about, uh, what, what that gave you in terms of like, like stepping onto the world, culturally speaking, like Um, did it inform your design at the time? I don't like that, that cultural, 
I think I was still really figuring that stuff out. You know, I mean, I was, I had been spending a lot of time in India. I spent that summer in between high school and college in India, trying to identify with that part of myself. Um, It was hard though, because in America, everyone considers me Indian. They look at me and they say, oh, you're Indian. And in India, everyone would look at me and think I'm American. Mm. And that was still something I was trying to figure out because you couldn't kind of be this hip hop loving sports, uh, you know, former graffiti artist. Yeah. Uh, Indian person yeah. that that kind of identity didn't exist like yeah. we're kind of the first generation of people who can be sort of public about we were in all these things yeah you know? that's that's very true I, I, I feel that there's something really interesting about um, uh, people like us and uh, brown people uh, that are because Filipinos are brown, uh, so oh, yeah, like, yeah, so you, you kind of like give like, mm, yeah, sure, <laughs> like I guess <laughs> we're all in this together, yeah, exactly. Um, where we, we really associated with these uh kind of fringe cultures, yes, yeah, like the hip hop, skating, yes, um, and like you know, like all that stuff, and it's become like this industry now where it informs industry. Isn't that bananas? Yeah. It's completely inversed. And I don't know what the outsider push is now. Like what's the outsider fringe of all that stuff? Is it just like a different like sub culture of all those other subcultures? I really don't. I mean, maybe people who don't use the internet. Maybe. Is it, yeah. Maybe. <laughs> Cause there's nothing underground anymore. Like if, right. it's, if it's on the web, if it's yeah. on the, if it's on the internet, it's not underground. Vinyl records, you know, slow culture, film photos, I guess. I don't know. I think that there's sort of a niche for everything now and whatever you're into, but I going back to India. Yeah. I love my family there. They're incredible. They're also very progressive and everyone has always accepted me, but I didn't necessarily feel like there was a culture, a culture to accept me there or to fully identify with. And it's interesting when you're sort of straddling those two things. I mean, I love the food. I love the tradition. I love traditional food. I love the traditional art and design. But when you look at, when I was trying to look at Indian art, Mm -hmm. it was either ancient Hmm. or wildly contemporary that, I felt was too far reaching and not relatable. Oh, give me an example. Um, far reaching and not relatable. You go into an, you know, if you go into a contemporary art museum and you look at a painting that has no resonance or meaning to you, sure. Um, because it's been inspired by impressionism and that's what they think art is. And that's right. the only sort of, cause you could trace the line, right? That's the only form. That's the only formula that they can contemporize. Um, it's not necessarily, something that I related to specifically. Yeah. And I think that there's a lot to draw from the ancient culture to make something contemporary and interesting. Um, but I wasn't seeing that at the time, you know, and I wasn't seeing, you know, any kind of like femme athletes or tomboys or, I mean, I have a cousin who's definitely, uh, you know, down with that vibe, Sure. but I wasn't seeing that all over. And so just, it, it is so valuable to be able to see yourself in somebody. Absolutely. And, you know, know that you're all right. Like, yeah. you're cool. Or, yeah. Or you you know where you come from, yes. almost. Yeah. You know, it's really seeing that that line you can just trace back to, you know, it's like literally like maybe just a generation. Exactly. For sure. So when it comes from so many different places um, to, to kind of become solid as a being can, can be difficult, I yeah. think. Um, but living in New York, I think really did that for me. Right. Because New York is that too. New York is all those different things. So um, I think New York is really where things started to come together in a way where if, 
New York is also made up of so many different things, so many different cultures. You're on the train and you'll hear somebody speaking Russian and you'll hear somebody speaking Urdu and you'll hear somebody speaking Japanese right. and you'll hear somebody speaking English. Kind of take it for granted. Yeah, I guess so, yeah. But it was amazing to me and I always got, I got really excited about trying to learn a couple different words in each language yeah. or just being able to identify all these different things and how they could all come together and live mostly cohesively together mm -hmm. as this living, breathing, pulsating city. So to become a part of that uh, was a true homecoming, I think. Yeah, it, it, it's so crazy in that city when they when they deal with multiculturalism and even just the way they you describe a human being um it sounds like really like a police report <laughs> you know well, well you just talk about Boom. someone no, but, but not in that bad way i know i know that that's kind of like a, a a lit term but i'm i'm saying like if someone were to describe me like oh it's rich he's asian he's about this tall right yes he like he's a lighter complexion no hair blah, blah. you know what i'm saying it's like oh okay, yeah. cool i need to know how to find that human being mm -hmm. because I owe him 20 bucks. Yeah. <laughs> Where is he? Right. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? Of but it's, it's very plain because it was like, Hey, he looks like that. He's over there. Right. right but then right. out here in Oregon, it's like, everyone's like, Oh, he's, uh, he's male. And he's, uh, <laughs> they don't want to say they have a red shirt on. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, Cause mm -hmm. it like over in New York, it just, it sits on the surface constantly. Yes. And it's always there. And you feel that you are all just living there. And there's also pride. Everyone's, everyone's I think. equal. Totally. There's pride about it. It's like, Oh, yo, this dope, this dope Indian person, this dope Indian girl, or like, Oh, you know, my homeboy is like, you know, big Puerto Rican dude over there. So, exactly. You know what I mean? Exactly. And it feels all right. It feels all right because we're kind of all in it. And, and he, I think everybody has that pride and not yeah. that we don't, not that I'm without any pride of who I am or where I come from living in Oregon. But the fact is that many, the other people don't have any education on yeah. how to approach it. Yeah. Because also, I mean, I have friends that are Pakistani who live here that are called Indian all the time. And you're sure. like, whoa, you don't know, like people don't have the language. You don't to, know the specifics. Yeah. Right. They don't have the language and then they start making assumptions and, or for like many people in East Asia, there's like a lot of assumptions that get made like, Oh, you're Chinese. And people exactly, are like, yeah. uh, actually I'm Korean or whatever. Yeah, it's, totally. And somehow New York people are more attuned to those nuances too. I think at least in my experience, you know, and that's a beautiful thing and interested it's it's so true because yeah to your point it's like uh, even uh, me and Ali uh, she uh, my fiance for you guys uh, listening uh, she's Korean nice. and I'm Filipino so like you know that's a that's a, a combination that I don't see that often mm -hmm. so then we talk about it all the time like I'm public she's like oh yeah it's my my Filipino houseboy uh -huh. <laughs> and I'm always cracking I'm just like yeah <laughs> yeah you're cool and it. I love it I love it you know but that's because like we understand what things mean and we and also we have like such mutual love and respect for each other of course that like you know, we, that we leverage that um, that knowledge of each other's backgrounds in order to speak of you know things in, in pride and love. Of course, and that's also a very intimate relationship. That oh, you totally. Are very aware. It's not like some random person is calling you that. Oh, totally. Yeah. You yeah, know yeah, what yeah. I mean? She like, doesn't really say that. I'm just kind of throwing out there. I'm just saying, like, it's kind of funny. Yeah, for sure. I, <laughs> I think, laugh at that shit. I think that the that the nuance of culture is something that can be um, you can really get into it in a city where there is so much different kind different difference. Like in India, I mean, sorry. New York, you can have North Indian food, South Indian food, you can yeah. have all different kinds of food. You might be, if you're in a smaller town, you're going to just go to the Indian restaurant and you may have no idea what kind of food or where it's coming from. It's probably North Indian. Mm -hmm. That's kind of the, the classic, what you get at a restaurant typically. Um, 
Yeah, the nuance. Nuance, <laughs> nuance of different cultures in New York was like such an amazing celebration to be around all the time and yeah. to uh, kind of solidify as a person, I think. Right. I mean, I was there for 10 years. It was awesome. Uh, was were you time. doing a lot of design work out there, a lot of agency work? Yeah, when I, I graduated Pratt and then I, um, I had a kind of interesting start to my career. It was a very weird time bad yeah. time in new york was- <laughs> it's funny because i feel like we're, we're we're talking in a line we're talking the chronological line yeah. but then we keep doing all these offshoots <laughs> about so it's really fascinating i kind of i love the the river that we're weaving right okay, now. okay cool um so it's 2001 when i graduated um and you know the tragedy of september 11th happened and i it was a little bit rough to get some jobs so i was doing all kinds of stuff i was yeah. working in a tattoo shop i was working i think i was a waitress i um had a job at a small design firm, which was neat. I really, I was kind of directionless, to be honest. I just knew I had to get a job with health insurance. Mm-hmm. Was what my mom was like. You need to get health insurance. Wow, it's amazing that you're appreciative about that at that age. Well, she was just pushing me. I mean, I, I, I didn't fact, have health insurance for years. The fact that wow, I mean, I don't think I was allowed to not have health insurance. I was like, yeah. and my mom was a doctor. I didn't have. And, yeah. Wow. Dang. I know, but she was Sounds just, like your parents are pretty liberal. Um, more more just like I rebelled really hard. Dang. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think that, uh, you know, I was lucky enough to go to art school, but that was because that was the only thing I could have possibly done. I was a terrible student in high school. I was super depressed. I was not getting through. I was barely passing any class um, except art because I loved it and I was good at right. it and I was supported through that. So I'm very grateful to my parents that they were like, well, she's got to go to college. That was like not a choice to not go to college. Um, and I had decided I was going to go to art school and I got the blessing on that because it was at least, at least it was college. Right. 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 Um, you came out with a piece of paper that yeah, said you graduated. You graduated. And of course it was like one of the best schools. So it is. Can like, it's easily one of the, one of the best. Yeah. So they can brag about that. So everybody, everybody's happy. And I had an amazing experience. There. I absolutely love my time there. I'm still friends with so many people that I went to school with. There it was a really rad time. Um, but I didn't, I didn't come out, being so certain of my artistic identity. Mm. I think that, you know, that was before Instagram. That was before these sort of, these like really strong influences of, yeah. you know, becoming a personal, personal like uh, aesthetics yeah, or design celebrity. That wasn't real. I mean, there was oh, Paula yeah. Shore, there was a few people, but there wasn't like, not every single person was really having their, you know, people could have their 15 minutes, but it wouldn't last you know, a year, which is what happens now, or years, or just the longevity of being an individual in design or illustration. Um, I didn't have that concept. Um, I was just told, you know, get a job with health insurance. Yeah. We don't care what you do. Just get a job with health insurance. Um, so I, I, that's what I did eventually. I I mean, I did all these kind of crazy jobs for a little bit. I hand painted carousel horses for a while. Hmm. That was, Really cool. Probably one of the coolest jobs I ever had. Wow. But um, I started working in fashion advertising in New York. Um, and I just kind of got lucky. My first photo shoot, it was like Dame Dash and um, Naomi Campbell. And it, oh, was, wow. it was a Rockaware shoot. I was like 23. Rockaware. Yeah. What What year was this? Uh, 2004. Wow. Yeah. Um, God, I'm old. Um, but... I was like this sweaty, you know, bike punk, like going to this photo shoot. We would scan Polaroids and design layouts for that. Oh, that makes and, sense. Yeah. And I'd always had an interest in fashion. Um, and I decided not to become, you know, go the fashion 
designer education because I didn't like the industry, but it's so ironic because almost my entire career I've worked with fashion brands, sportswear brands. Right. Um, you kind of end up back in that anyway because, you know, art influences fashion, which influences culture. Right, And right. that whole mix is really interesting to me. Yeah. Um, so I did, I, you know, I worked in a couple different places in New York for a while, um, mostly fashion advertising, big photo shoots. Yeah. Um, super cool stuff. Bubble, big- hitting that bubble. Yeah. <laughs> right right before the crash, right oh, before yeah. the, the next crash. Oof. Well, I moved to Philly because I was getting kind of tired of doing that work. I was tired of making women look skinny. You know, yeah. I was tired of making their faces look perfect. It just, it wasn't sitting with me and there was just something that didn't feel right. And I finally was, you know, getting to that steering wheel of the ship and being like, no, I want to be more involved in art and community. So I moved back home to Philly. I had a job at the Philadelphia Museum of Art doing exhibition design. It was absolutely incredible. Every day was educational. Hmm. I love art history. Um, It was rad. It was super cool. And I was living back in Philly. I was helping run a printmaking studio in my neighborhood where we were teaching silk screening to people who lived in the neighborhood totally for free. Wow. Yeah, it was, it was awesome. It was, it was really awesome putting on music shows, all that kind of stuff. Um, but ultimately that job was create, like hit a creative ceiling really quick. Hmm. There, it was a really conservative brand, the museum. Um, well, it is a museum. Of course. They're looking at things in terms of centuries. Yeah, and they're not, and it's not a contemporary museum. So the design to support that obviously has to take kind of a second seat to the art, and I completely respect that. But for me, I was getting bored. Yeah. And like we talked about before, you know, I just felt like I needed to push myself. And while I was getting, I was able to push myself in my life, I wanted to push myself creatively. Yeah. So I moved to anthropology owned by Urban Outfitters yep. where I was doing illustration every day, hand making stuff every day. It was crazy fun. Hmm. Crazy fun. Would it be like uh, uh, there are store displays, like uh, window displays and interior displays? Because like, that's what I associate them with like having illustrative interiors. Totally. Um, there's a lot of handmade elements with that. Everything is handmade. So, you know, there's tons of invites for events that would go on. I mean, I would hand make 500 invites in two days. In a Holy week. shit. Yeah. So I was doing that for different stores all around the country and sort of working as a liaison between web and retail. Gotcha. Um, so if there's a some, you know, beautiful build out in retail, how are we going to do that execution online? Or how are we going to make some sort of invite that matches that, you know, seasonal story? Mm -hmm. It was really, it was fun. I think that there were some personality clashes there. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not like a real girly girl, but it was really, really fun for the time that I was there. Mm-hmm. Now we're hitting the, the economic crash. <laughs> <laughs> and that's kind of when like boho, boho chic was really, really a thing. Yeah, yeah for sure. Um, yes. And never my thing. But yes. No, I feel you. I feel you. Yeah. It was just a term that I knew in my head. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so okay, I thought cool. I'd whip it out. Cool. I think, but coming to understand yourself as a designer is really unique um, and difficult. It's a challenge. Absolutely. Because being a designer, you're always serving the client, right? If you're an artist, you're serving yourself, ideally, I, I would think. Um, artists are self-serving. Designers are client-serving. So what's fun about being a designer is you're solving the problem for someone else. Yeah. You are figuring out what works for this demographic, what works for this seasonal campaign story, what works for this brand. And when you work at a brand for a little while, you spend your time doing that. You come to get to know the, gra- the, the demographic. You can really get your mind into the psychology of these things. Yeah. And you learn, you learn what you learn and yeah. then you graduate. 
It feels like for the commercial work and commercial art and design, if like you're really a, a source of energy or you're you're facilitating energy flow, because like the client probably has like some weird craziness, like like and some sort of like weird tension or problem or issue that they want you to solve, obviously, yes. and then you are harnessing that energy and putting it through your filter, and then you're either facilitating or you know creating something that feels like you addressed their their thoughts yeah you know you, you, you really you're really kind of you have to be kind of like a like a design airbender yeah or a <laughs> dog know? walker or a dog walker you know oh that's oh sometimes that's, you're dragging the dog that's so interesting <laughs> i've never heard that metaphor that's a great metaphor sometimes i just made it up but sometimes you're like dragging the dog and sometimes the dog is walking right next to you sometimes the dog is dragging you yeah and sometimes the dog takes a massive shit and you don't have a bag and <laughs> <laughs> you gotta figure out what to do in that situation you're a dog i'm gonna use i might steal that please oh please and everyone should feel Feel free to use that. You're one. a dog walker. It's so true. Yeah, but once you get into the psychology of that dog for long enough, then yep. you can really, really work with them. And I think that it's tough. It's there's a definitely. I have an internal struggle with the art that I want to make, the design, the design that I want to do, and also the work that comes to me. There, yeah. It's kind of three different things. Right. Sometimes the work that comes to you in the beginning of your career isn't necessarily 100 your design identity or your aesthetic or any of, of that. I mean, I, I don't think I had that cracked. I was trying to move away from, you know, like the graffiti history, the sort of darker, what was for me darker times in my life when I went to school. Um, so trying to figure out who that person was, right. was a whole, it was a whole new experience. Ironically, I've kind of come back to that yeah. punk aesthetic, you know, that I think nostalgia yeah. has, has taught us that uh, <laughs> even that can be commercialized. <laughs> There's that. And I think there's also some, some of that is really authentic. When you go back, people talk about like, find your inner child when you're yep. meditating yep. or yep. at yoga. If you do that, um, you know, you're meant to find that inner child who, you know, was whimsical and truthful and honest and was, could draw for hours and was net, you know, wasn't second guessing themselves. Mm -hmm. And who is that person? And I think I'm now trying to get back to that in my art and design you can't you can't always make that choice in your commercial work and what's going to pay your bills you can't right. yeah I, you can i i think that there's a little bit of a, a little bit of a fallacy with instagram and everything where we all can control what people see right but just because somebody's posting a bunch of artwork that doesn't mean that that's what's paying their bills oh right for sure you know and that that's a really important reality um i talk to my students about that and yeah. i i talk to my peers about that too so oh okay so Going, that's really interesting. So what? He has a miniature plastic hand I do in his hand. Yeah, I do. I, yeah. So for the listener, I'm, I'm I'm moving very soon, so I have like all this random stuff just sitting around, and I do have a little one of those little hands that you just put on your finger, like a little waving it's hand. It's also white, by the way. It is. Yeah, I know. So it's not culturally representational, yeah. to be honest. Yeah. To the to the miniature hand manufacturers out there, <laughs> maybe you could get a skin swatch or two. <laughs> oh my god yeah well you know when apple's doing it oh, apple's doing go. it then all of a sudden like yeah. okay yeah um because you know the emojis like they, they started giving us like multicolored emojis that oh. was life-changing that, life life that was life-changing oh my god that was real you're like oh i'm using the brown hand and yeah totally i was like oh, i got the baby 
your hand up in here. Yes, air. exactly. It's like, wow, this, this, am I shedding a single tear because of an emoji that represents exactly. me? Exactly. That's crazy. Exactly. I'd like a samosa emoji though. Like the food is a little bit leaning. Um, it's like Western and Japan. It uh, is. And hey, cool. I mean, cool for Japan. Uh, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Well, they're probably going, well, it's probably for the, the markets where the iPhones are most popular. Well, <laughs> potentially. Maybe, but India does have a lot of people. I've heard. It does. I've, I've heard that too. <laughs> I heard that's a real, that's a rumor that I'm waiting for confirmation. Yeah, samosa emoji. Let's get, let's get on that. <laughs> Uh, I'm, I'm thinking like actually that was probably pretty life-changing um, the emoji thing because I guess we had been leaning on the traditional uh, smiley face like yellow aesthetic mm. which which go, goes back to however long and that's tr- a trademarked entity yeah. so we've always been like f- uh, feeding off of that DNA when it came to our emojis yes so then once we separated ourselves from that I was like yo that's that's such a simple just like umbilical cord cut. It's incredible. You know? And the flags, I love it. I, I don't know if there's, I hope there's a Palestinian flag on there. I have not checked that out, but. Oh, really? I feel like hope. when I, when I scroll that far into the flags, I'm always looking for the Filipino flag. I was like, oh, I'm tired already. It's alphabetical. <laughs> Did you know that? Is it really? Yeah. I figured it out. I like sat and was like, I'm going to figure this out. It is, when growing up, growing get, up, we had a. Get the hell out of here. Yeah. Alphabetical? Alphabetical. Check it out. Uh, India's like right in the middle. When Growing man. up, we had a memory game, you know, with the cards that you flip over. But yeah. our memory game, and I attribute this to my parents, like, you know, be, really wanting us to learn stuff. Um, <laughs> say that so, so, like, painstaking. Um, it was like, ugh, well, they want us to learn stuff. <laughs> I, wasn't, I wasn't great at learning. But um, <laughs> but it was all flags of the oh, world. Oh, really, professor? <laughs> our, uh, yeah, I know. The tables have turned. <laughs> um, oh, I have a story I want to tell you. Oh, sure. Well, I did want to ask the question about the students, but yeah, I want to hear the story. I want I want to say it, vo- I want to vocalize it so I don't forget. Sure, yeah. great. Um, I'm just going to tell you this. Don't, yeah, don't Do what you want with it. Okay. It's it's a sad story. Oh. Ninth grade. Okay. I had a history class called Non-Western Civilizations. Sure. Okay, so first of all, that name is crazy. Heavy hitting. Yeah, so ninth grade, probably like one term, there was there was a class called Non-Western Civilizations. I had a teacher, his name was Mr. Byrne. Mm. We were studying India one day, mm. and he dressed up as Gandhi. Ooh. Full brown face, Ooh. makeup on what his skin. What year is this? 1993, four. Ooh. And Hadn't Ted Danson just gotten hit with like the whole blackface thing oh i don't know you know oh man no. it was at the friars club and then he did like a uh he was very friendly with uh whoopi goldberg i believe for uh, a film that they were doing and then he did a roast at the friars club did full blackface and it was got like got shat dang on. yeah anyway mr Byrne, i called him out i told him it was racist <sighs> good for you I how old are you uh 13 Good for you. I got suspended from school. What? Yeah. What school is this? Lower Marion High School. Wow. Yeah. It's. Are you kidding me? No. That would be national news today, huh? That would be national news today. Yeah. That would actually be national news today, and then there would be like a crazy, like just firestorm around that teacher. I still think about that. I mean, he's probably dead now. So yeah, I'll go. I'll go find. Or, he's, he's, or dead inside it. potentially. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully, at yeah. least. Yeah. I mean, I hope he is at least dead in one form. <laughs> No regrets on that. <laughs> Damn. You got, you got called, you got suspended for calling a racist act racist? Yeah, yeah. And what did he say? Was he just like, I'm offended by this? Like, he's just 
Ugh, that sucks. Yeah, it sucked. That's a memory that sticks with me. I tell that story to people because it's incredible to see how emboldened people, how like young people are now because they have the internet. Yeah. And it's awesome. And I'm so happy for them that they have it. I mean, I'm kind of glad I didn't grow up with that stuff. Me too. But I'm, I'm really happy that, um, people can share these stories that are happening, whether or yes. not, th- whether or not things are entirely changing is one thing, but the fact that people can say this happened yeah. and this is happening and you're not alone in this happening yeah. is important. Oh, that sucks. Were you the, and you were the only uh, Indian student in that class? Yeah, definitely. But really? I will say all the other brown and black people rallied around me for sure. Around really? Me. Oh, yes. Yes. You, you must have had like a ton of support. Um, by, by those friends, which was less than 50% of the school, but yeah, sure. for sure. But then sure. like, was the administration, like did, did the administration even deal with it in like a way it was like, hey, we have to actually talk about this? Oh no. <sighs> no. That kills me. Yeah. It was bananas. That fucking kills me. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was, I told you it was dark times. It was <laughs> Oh crazy. sure, man. Medi- and how do you, I mean, as like a medieval kid, times, yeah. as a kid that happening to you and then that being the response, you think you're not going to get depressed and, yeah. f- and like struggle and f- not feel like it's yeah. crazy. Yeah. Sorry, he, that was like a major flashback that I know, but I, I, I know I actually loved you tell that story. And mm-hmm. uh, man, I bet that dude just thought he was like he was doing a fun thing that day. I know, of course. Yeah, I, and yeah, he's like, oh, I'm really gonna, I'm gonna really gonna have fun today. Yeah, I'm gonna walk in. This Putting kids his are makeup love it. on. Yeah, exactly. Just do 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 like eating a bagel and shit. Yeah, oh eating my his God. racist bagel. Seriously. Um. Oh, so going back to the whole student thing and uh, back to celebrity design, I was curious, oh, like yeah. when when you talk to your students, because there is such a, a presence of quote unquote celebrity design, mm-hmm. um, where there is a that misrepresentation of like the work. Uh, in a way, I don't, and which I, I don't think is a bad thing because I, I think I am slightly guilty of uh, this in my social media life as well, where uh, I'll just put out the hits and I'll just sure. make content that's specific to that, um, specific to my vision. And then like the stuff I do at work, um, you know, bare minimum, I just want to make sure that my, my paid work life is just uh, fun, <laughs> at yeah, least fun or dope, course. you know, but even if I don't want to, or at least well paid, <laughs> at least well paid. Exactly. Those are the levers. Yeah. It's like fun and money. Yeah, for <laughs> fun sure. Fun and money are really, Absolutely. are the levers, uh, for me. Uh, but, uh, well, health what, insurance, health insurance. Yeah. <laughs> that's, near my mom. <laughs> that's slowly, but well, I did have appendicitis last year. almost killed me. Do you still have your appendix? No, wow. took it out, ripped it out of my body. In with a jar a, anywhere? Or? No, I asked. They wouldn't give it to me. Mm. They were just like, oh, somebody else has it in a jar. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they were like, oh, that's gross. I'm like, that's gross. I want to know the thing that killed me yeah. so I can have it. Wow. That almost killed me so I can have it so I know that I conquered it. I'm glad you're here. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, what do, what do your students think about that perception? Like, what, what is, how does that change their goals? Because my goals at the time were just to get a job. Exactly, right? So my goals were to get a job with health insurance. Yeah. Literally that and not even not even like work at pentagram or do you know yeah. I, I i didn't have really an idea at, at, at that time um and like i said it's taken a long time to sort of come full circle back right. to the the sort of inner child or sure. inner inner punk or whatever sure. it is i think for people like us though actually i think we won in the end but yeah go. yeah i agree 100 yeah. um but for them i i respect a little bit of the tenacity that they have where they are so sort of hardcore in their belief of who they are. Yeah. You know, if they're like, oh, I really love doing type and that's what I want to do, or I'm really into comics and that's what I want to do. Right. I think that having that vision at a younger age these days is actually really beneficial to you. Yeah. Um, because you've got to find, find your lane. Um, I do believe it's really important when you're in school and, you know, sophomore level to be experimenting and yep. to be learning about how to work in many different ways. The core tenets of what I teach are not only execution, but concept 
you've got to ha- you've got to be able to think, right? If you only can execute your only, that's all you're ever going to do. But mm-hmm. you've got to be able to think, and learning how to think is teaching somebody how to learn how to think is a yeah. whole other thing. You, yeah, it's it's hard. Yeah, kind of have to. Um teach them something completely different right, <laughs> in order to teach right. them how to think. Right. But the, as far as like celebrity perception on Instagram and that kind of thing, um, some of them have a, a very acute awareness of it and some have no idea, which I am extremely shocked by. You think it's an Oregon thing? I don't know. I mean, I have immigrant students too. I have, I have students that are coming from Taiwan, from Japan, from all, from all over the place. So I don't know what that is. It's mm-hmm. to, I mean, I don't know the the 19-year-olds that I know are all my students. I don't have family that I have access to that's that age or anything like that. Um so some of them really know what's going on on Instagram. Some have no idea. Um I have some students that honestly I have told like you're ready. Yeah. You don't need to drop out of school. Don't yeah, yeah, don't yeah. keep doing this money thing. You're ready. But then that particular student that I talked to got really nervous and didn't didn't understand. I was like, "Okay, maybe you're not ready. You need to- <laughs> I can tell in your eyes. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. But right like now. your work was, your work is there, and you can create. I mean, Instagram or social media in general. Yeah, like you can create. You can put out the work you want to make in order to get the work you want to do. Yeah, and there's not, there's nothing wrong with that. Do you think we're hitting a bubble when it comes to uh, niche creativity? Like, are there too many voices right now, or um, should we? Hmm, how do I refer, how do I phrase this question? Uh, is there not enough representation of good client work hmm. out there, and are we putting out too much of our own shit, Ooh. or is there just too many lanes uh, that you too many lanes to receive content that we have to fill up all the lanes, so we have to do it with our own shit. Right, every single niche must be filled. Exactly, because mm-hmm. it feels like that. It feels like the plinko game. Yeah, and <laughs> it's like one massive plinko game. We're just constantly just like, it has to go down that one, go yeah. down this one, you know? Yeah, I think that there is room for everyone to make whatever weird kind of thing they want to. Yeah. I don't know if there's room for everyone to make money doing that. Absolutely. And and I think that that's a huge question mark. That's to that's TBD. You know. Um, like are we are we the new Etsy? Is Instagram the new Etsy? Right. No, like, I don't know because Instagram you know I mean? is also choking people. Like it chokes what people see. I could be in the same room as my brother and he posts something and I don't see it on Instagram. Oh, because the algorithm sucks. Yeah, now. exactly. Yeah. So I don't really know. I don't know how that works. No. Um, I have I have no idea. I think I mean I discover certain artists who I believe should you know be have like a huge following and then they don't and you're like why is that? Yeah. Um, the, the, that's kind of like chasing a lottery ticket a little, a little bit. I think creating the work that you want to make, um, creating the work you like to make and then to get the work you want to do is definitely a process that I recommend. It seems like it, it should work. Mm-hmm. Um, and also just like, if you can be happy while you're making stuff, that's yeah, wonderful. It's, absolutely. you know, that, that moment when you're sitting and drawing, I don't know if you have this experience, but I do, I'm like quiet in my heart in mm-hmm. a good way. Like it's one of the only times of probably if I'm like playing sports or if I'm drawing, I'm like fully quiet in my heart and happy and I can do it for a really long time. And that has nothing to do with the paycheck necessarily. I might be doing that at a job or I might be doing it at home. And I, it's such a blessing to be able to just have that, um, activity that I like to do. Um, when talking to students, I don't, I don't sort of argue anybody's point that they need to, make money. They need to pay their, uh, you know, their bills, their student loans. 
health insurance. Some people are sending money to their families back home in other yep, countries. And absolutely, um, th- those those are major realities that the whole follow your dreams sentence. People people. I wasn't really told to follow my dreams. I was told to get health insurance. You know. Right, yeah. And so. I want to tell my students to follow their dreams. I re- I really do. But I also want them to know that it's not crazy to have to fulfill a certain uh, requirement of reality. You know? Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Do you, what do you think about the conversation in design and creativity um, and multiculturalism? I think that there is like a thought. I was playing with this idea yesterday. This uh, Let me know if this is too much of a diverging topic. But um, I was playing with the idea that yesterday... Uh, about uh, the influence of European design, European design yes. in design, and how that is something that is always thought of like these are the tenets of what good design course, is. I, quote, yes. quote, unquote. I think about this. Yeah, but then design from a multiculturalism mm-hmm. perspective um, um, is always thought of in terms of trend mm-hmm. or or region specific. Mm-hmm. So that's design that those guys do right but then when we talk about design real Mm -hmm. design we use these tenets of um you know traditional whatever like minimalism or whatever Mm -hmm. yeah exactly swiss i swiss thought on design 100 i think about that a lot too i actually had pitched this idea to a big brand Mm -hmm. about um exploring beauty outside of the eurocentric vision in graphic design yes um and w- i mean I, that's a very hefty sentence um i don't have the answers it's really meaningful though it is i don't have the answers for that necessarily i mean you know when when people think graphic design they think helvetica right sure that's yeah. that's one of the main tenets the grid all these things um when you start although look- the feature is a grid <laughs> sure for sure i mean you got to get those pixels to line up somehow. <laughs> <laughs> exactly but the grid is the solution for like the multitude of all the shit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, yeah. I'm, anyway. not, I'm not knocking that. I oh. mean, in Islam, non, non-Eurocentric, in Islam, I mean, mathematics is a huge tenet of design and it's calligraphy and it is stunning and infinite, infinite. Um, it is unbelievable if you go to the Taj Mahal and you look at the carvings, the Arabic that's carved in this marble that it yeah. looks like a beautiful pattern. Mm-hmm. But when you get up to it, you're reading la, 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 la over and over and over again. <laughs> and you're like, this is unbelievable. Uh-huh. Um, so the, the study of non-Eurocentric beauty and design, it exists. Yes. And how do, no one knows how to talk about it. Yeah. How do we get to talk about it in, I mean, we live, we're in Portland, Oregon, right? Like yeah. how, where's, how is that relevant to the consumer? Yes. Um, I think that consumers these days are are hungry for um, feeling relevant yes. to a larger scale and to more people. Yeah, people, you know, the state the state of America is just um, horrifying, a little bit of a disaster yep. with our presidency, and people want to align themselves with Muslim culture, and people want to align themselves, obviously, with Black Lives Matter. People want to be a part of all of these different. Yeah, America's movements. like a weird, like fucked up human centipede right now. Yeah. <laughs> It's fucked up, man. Yeah, it's re- it's depressing for it, sure. It is really depressing. I, I, yeah, I would rather watch like Human Centipede than like CNN sometimes. Yeah, <laughs> bums me out. Yeah, I agree. But as far as design That's goes, not I actually think actually true. That movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think as far as design goes, people people want, or sorry, as far as life goes, people want to be a part of these other cultures. Yes, and don't necessarily have access. Design and art is a great way to do that, but I think we have to be careful or maybe not we, but um, designers, brands have to be careful to not be 
fetishizing something, exotifying something just because people, the, the people want it. Yeah. I was in a store with someone, a friend of mine, That's and we really were- really interesting point. Yeah, we were looking through a bunch of shirts and there was a shirt that was written, it was written all in Arabic. Yeah. And he was like, yo, that's dope. And I'm like, do you even know what that says? Yeah. You know? And it's like, of course it's, a, it's, I mean, Arabic is so beautiful when it's written out. Um, but are you just going to buy that? Because it's Arabic. You have no idea what it says. Right. Or, you know what, how like people used to get kanji tattooed on them and they had no idea what the kanji actually meant, but they got it because it, it looked cool right, and it right. does look cool. It yeah. definitely looks cool. And it's wonderful that we can, um, appreciate the, you know, non-Roman typography, right. like kanji, Hebrew, is that the same Arabic. Thing? Is that the same thing as Apu and the Simpsons though? Do you yeah. need, <laughs> did, does that, is that the, the harbinger? Yeah, maybe. First stuff? I don't know. Maybe. I mean, it could be. I don't know. I, I don't know either. I mean, I'm, I'm sort of lucky to have some access to that. Yeah. I study Japanese for years, so I can write and read some Japanese, you know, Urdu is my dad's mother tongue. So, and Urdu is written like Arabic. Mm-hmm. So I have some, you know, f- familial relationship yeah. to that. And then we have Hindi, which is also written differently. Like I've got some different languages in my you know in the back of my eyeballs that i have some resonance with mm-hmm. um but i i get what you mean sure people are starting to warm up to it so they, they see it they're not familiar but they need to they want to touch it and they want to feel it and hopefully that also means that they're going to understand the culture understand the meaning you know right. understand like come to come to don't just buy the t-shirt yeah it's true like it's not just a survey class right you know? right it's, it's right. not uh non-western civilizations <laughs> class. you know what i'm saying yeah yeah it, it's such a difficult topic to get around because I, I look at design uh at eurocentric design i think like oh that's cool also person from a personal aesthetic it's just not what i I tend to gravitate towards mm-hmm. at this time of my life. I might, sure. you know, at some point I might just like want to clear the palate, like eat some ginger and just like, you know, mm-hmm. you know, you know, Smell some coffee. exactly. Uh-huh. And just like, you know, um, have all my right angles set up. But, um, it, like when we talk about multicultural design like, um, you know, whether it be from, uh, South America, Asia, Africa, India, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's the type of thing where you almost need to come up with a new word or a new term right. in order to, truly contextualize what that could mean because mm-hmm. the, you know something as simple as like you know our left to right visual orientation could be com- is completely flipped in another culture totally you know totally then how do you even address those tenants in a way that makes sense and you know and and are sensitive to uh when we uh, bring that dna into something that we do right well who's you deciding know? what's good is Exa- that's oh ooh you just nailed it yeah you who's just deciding what's good it. and and in in, in my classes with my students, this is something that is actually a great challenge for me because I have to grade work that maybe I wouldn't necessarily hang it on my wall, but I know it's good. Like I wouldn't, I would never buy that t-shirt or I would never buy that brand that they've designed, but I can respect the qualities of design that they have done, whether yeah. that's composition, the illustration, the color, all of those things. And especially if they have a rationale behind it. Yes. Right. And that is, so we have to sort of change our perspective of not just what we're going to buy is good or not just what we want in our homes is good, but the storytelling should be good. Yeah. You know, there's got to be some sort of backbone to what's being made. And, you know, just to talk about Eurocentric design for a second, um, in illustration or Eurocentric point of view of beauty, um, every time, you know, you would see a figure in an illustration for a long time, the beautiful woman was skinny. Mm-hmm. And for a long time, white. Right. And there's this in 
intense paradigm shift that is so transparent right now where it's like, all right, every woman you're seeing right now, a lot of the women we're seeing are like black women with natural hair. Yeah. That is like every brand is trying to get on that. Right. And I For a long time we didn't even know how to depict black people in illustration. Right. Of course. So we were afraid of it. Yes, exactly. So I think when you're drawing something or you're drawing a body, I know I do this when I'm drawing a body, I really try to consider, especially a woman or a femme's body. I want, I really think about this, you know, how is this drawing that I'm making a beautiful woman? I'm in my head making it a beautiful woman. How am I going to depict that? Am I going to give her some fat rolls? Am I going to give her a little whiskers on her chin? How can I add a little bit of, you know, relevance to my life, my culture, my struggles in my own body that another woman or person can see and then see themselves in it or see that difference that and normalize that. Yeah. That that's a wonderful opportunity that we all have. I think so. I, I think finding the curators to to help us determine exactly like what what this representation could mean for the future. I think that's that's really important. For sure. Because you don't have them. No. I mean yeah. we're getting them. I think we have, you know, we have a handful being able to have this conversation here with you and diversifying who all these people are. Yeah. Right. If people come from different places, you know, and that is such a beautiful thing. And we're so, I love talking to people that are different than me. Yeah. Me too. I don't want to be around the people that are exactly the same all the time. I think that that's where you learn and that's really where inspiration comes from. I agree. Yeah. On that note, I think we're running out of time. It's been great having you in the show. Thank you so much. It's been amazing. Yeah, this has been super fun. So, thank you. Dude, thank you. This is awesome. Thanks for having me. So that was a really great conversation with Nishat. Hope you guys enjoyed that. If you want to follow her on social media, you can go to at Nishat, N-I-S-H-A-T on Instagram and Twitter. And also go to her website, Nishat Akhtar, N-I-S-H-A-T-A-K-H-T-A-R.com. And she's really awesome. And there's really some inspirational stuff that she puts out in the world. So that officially kicks off season two of First Generation Burden. Tune in again next week week uh, we have a great guest Kari Randolph who's a who's an illustrator and penciler with uh, Marvel Comics as well as like the big two and does a lot of great independent stuff and we have an amazing conversation uh, especially in relation to these uh, these days we're living in and if you want to follow me you can follow me at at rich underscore tu on instagram and twitter so i want to thank desgen for their support ben sounds on music and tune again next week for first generation burden thanks bye Rest in peace, Dick Gregory.